Welcome to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. It happens to all of us. We all face the reality of sin that leads to death. And with death comes that question of a funeral. What what do we do? What what is a funeral? We'll answer that question and more. Here on Faith and Family today, I'm Eddie Bates. Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. Find them on our website, kfuo.org, Concordia University, Wisconsin, in the sponsor section there. Check it out, C-U-W. Joining me by phone this morning, the Reverend Dr. Mark Burkholz, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Oak Lawn, Illinois, also author of A Funeral Planning Primer in uh, this month's issue, in the June-July issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Burkholz, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you, Andy. Wonderful to be with you. Glad to have you back and uh, and and talking more about uh, your article in this uh, this issue of the Lutheran Witness, the June July issue, and really this this issue addresses uh, uh, all the questions surrounding death, how we regard death as Christians, as Lutherans, and you address the uh, the questions that come up regarding funerals and and planning for funerals. What what uh, why has studying funerals and the the history of funerals and and what a pastor does in funerals why has that been important to you in your ministry as a pastor? I've been pastor here for uh, almost nine years, and so obviously I've been through the funeral process a number of times with you know, grieving families coming from a variety of different uh, angles at this, and I've noticed a few things that may be helpful in preparing my congregation for what. Uh, they may face when it comes time to plan a funeral for one of their loved ones, as well as thinking ahead to what sort of needs they might have, and particularly for their family members. Uh, Funeral planning can be a very difficult emotional experience, and so the more we can talk about it and prepare for it in advance, uh, the, uh, the smoother things tend to go when it actually comes time to go through this process together. So what is that, that? The big question is, what is a funeral? How did this? The, we read about it in scriptures, but how did this this whole practice, this tradition of funerals, uh, become what it is today? Well, funerals and just kind of burial practices in general is something that is pretty universally practiced among different cultures and religions. So, having a funeral or some sort of a burial rite or something to uh, to recognize when death happens. That's not a uniquely Christian thing. We've, we've got things like baptism, the Lord's Supper. Those are specifically Christian rites. But essentially every culture and religion has their ways of dealing with death and handling death. So uh, kind of having some sort of a, a rite or ritual associated with death is not a uniquely Christian thing, but obviously our funerals, the way that we do funerals as, as Christians, will reflect our beliefs, what we think about uh, why death happens, how we face death and mourn and grieve and comfort each other, and also uh, what we think about as life after death, what we're preparing for, how we picture and we uh, think of our, our loved ones who have died. So funerals are not uniquely a Christian thing, but there's definitely a, a Christian way to, to handle death and burial and the funeral service itself that it would be unique from the way that other other uh, other people would face it. What did that look like in the early church? What are some of the practices of, uh, what are some of the funeral practices of the early church? We don't have a lot of really explicit descriptions of a funeral service in the early church. Uh, we do have, for example, with uh, the Sunday morning services, things like that, we have a pretty clear idea exactly what those look like and how they, how they were laid out. 
for stuff in the early church, especially the first few centuries, we don't have any real specific descriptions or uh, I got eyewitness accounts of what a Christian burial or funeral service would have looked like in those days. So we have to do a little bit of detective work. Uh, we can take a look at uh, the way the graves were done and marked. Uh, we can kind of pick up clues from other writings that have little references here and there. Uh, a lot of times, especially in the first few centuries, it seems as though the the Christian burial service uh, connected somewhat with the general burial practices in the area the Christians were, but incorporated some different Christian elements. So, for example, in the Middle East, uh, areas around Jerusalem and there, it seemed like a lot of the Jewish practices uh, were continued the same way that it would have been done when, when Jesus was buried. And there seemed to be a good comfort that the, the people in the area found in connecting their death and their burial to the same way that Jesus did, so that just as Jesus died and was buried, so they were would be buried and then look forward to, to the resurrection. So the Jewish practice in that day, uh, we get some information about that from the New Testaments, from some other uh, Jewish writers at the time. Uh, the, the big thing that people may uh, notice right away is that it was not a long, drawn-out process the way it can be today. And nowadays, funerals may uh, take place you know, a couple of days, even a week or so after the event. In those days, the funeral, uh, all of the burial typically happened within either later that day or the next day, typically within about 24 hours. Uh, they showed a lot of care and concern for the body. So the, the body of the person who died would be washed and cleaned up as best they could, maybe anointed with some perfume or other sort of uh, incense, something that would provide a pleasant aroma. Uh, the body would be dressed and uh, either with kind of a nice pair of clothes or wrapped up with, with linen cloth. And then there would be a procession from the home of the person who had died out to the cemetery area, the burial places, which were typically outside the city. And that was an important event because uh, people may not have known about the death even until the procession took place. Um, the early Jewish writer Josephus mentioned that if there was a funeral procession, everybody was obligated to join in and to become part of that, that rite. So they would go out to the, to the burial place, uh, lay the, the loved one to rest, and then return back to their home for about a week or so of, of grieving and mourning. We see this, for example, with uh, the story of Lazarus where Jesus shows up at Mary and Martha's house, and they're still there a few days later, continuing to, to weep and mourn uh, for, for their loved one. Uh, well, what happened then is a lot of these places, the person would be laid out in almost like a mausoleum, a family uh, cave or tomb. And then uh, over the course of the next year or so, most of the soft tissues of the body would eventually uh, decay until all that was left was the, were the bones. And then the bones would be gathered together and put in a special box called an ossuary, uh, basically as long as your femur. That's the longest bone in your body. And they would put you then in some sort of a niche within the family tomb about a year afterwards. And there's evidence that early Christians in that area continued those practices similar to the way that uh, Jesus would have been buried and a lot of the other folks in the, in the New Testament we read about. Things were a little bit different in Rome, though. Uh, people probably know a little bit about the catacombs, those burial places that were carved into the rock underneath the city. That was not a uniquely Christian thing. There were uh, Roman and uh, Jewish catacombs there as well. Uh, but this was something uniquely 
uh, Christian the way that it was done there. Uh, there would be little, um, basically, places carved in for the, the people to be laid to rest. They called those dormitories. <laughs> the idea is that you are sleeping there until Christ comes and raises you from the dead. So they, if you take a look at the pictures, it almost looks like rows of bunk beds or something like at a college dorm, <laughs> where people were, were just kind of laid one next to another all the way down these long hallways. Uh, then they would be sealed up, and they would put a little inscription with the name of the person, maybe a, uh, a brief prayer, and then some artwork. Some of our earliest Christian artwork that we know of comes from these catacombs. There would be the drawings of Jesus as the Good Shepherd, uh, Jesus as the new Jonah coming from the up from the rising from the fish. A lot of pictures of hope and resurrection symbolism there in those catacombs. And then that also became a place of worship often for the persecuted church to come down there, and they would be very literally worshiping with uh, all the saints who had passed before them who, were, who had then been, been buried there. Uh, often Christians, one way you know that the Christian burial, they were buried holding on to crosses. They would place some sort of a carved cross in their hands. They would at least cross their arms over their chest to uh, indicate uh, their, their hope in uh, the, the one who had been crucified and died for them. So a lot of these things we can kind of pick up from, from archaeology and some other things, but we don't have a lot of really explicit descriptions of exactly kind of what went on. So burial practices certainly were were shaped by the, the geography and the, the really what, what was available in terms of land and space, too. Right. But uh, regardless of, of what method of burial, whether it's it's in a... Uh, in a cave or in the, the catacombs or, or whatever the, the method may be, there was still, for Christians, there was always this, this clear hope in the, the resurrection, this clear hope in Christ uh, that, that was communicated in, in some of in their practices of burial and, and in funeral as well. Right. They would, uh, there would always be a connection to you know, the resurrection of Christ, the hope of, of the resurrection of the body, uh, Early Christians didn't practice cremation at all. That was more of a pagan thing that the, some of the different uh, Roman and, and Greek religions practiced. But uh, Christians, there was a, a, a big comfort in being buried with Christ and then rising with him. So that, that picture of being laid in the tomb as Christ was and then being raised from the dead on the last day was something that uh, was, was very important for the early Christians. How did how did the burial practices and funeral practices change over time? Well, the the big thing is this addition of the funeral service. That's not something that started at the very beginning. So back then there would have there would be the um, the initial preparing of the body at the home, and then they would go out to the to the tomb or wherever the burial site was. Uh, in the early Christian practice, the, uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper became an important part of the whole burial process, the idea that they're, they're celebrating the Lord's Supper with those who have passed away. And uh, eventually it became uh, more and more important to hold that in a church, especially as churches were being built and Christianity becomes a more recognized legal religion, so that the, the actual funeral service itself uh, develops out of this uh, desire to have the Lord's Supper together as part of the, the mourning, the, the grieving process. And so we get this addition of some sort of a, a more formal service in there as part of the, the burial rite. 
Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, right? Exactly. When, right before we, we sing the song to us every week, the idea that in the Lord's Supper we're all gathered together around the, the heavenly throne where Christ comes, he, he comes with all of his people, and it's, it's a beautiful picture of, of hope and comfort. I've heard, and perhaps it, I misunderstood this, but I've heard that uh, the even the architecture in the, the sanctuary, uh, the for example, when a communion rail is a, a semicircle, that can serve as a visual reminder that while we celebrate the feast this side of heaven, there is this eternal feast in which we're participating as well. And so we're only seeing, you know, from this side of, of heaven. Exactly. I've heard that as well, uh, as you mentioned, with uh, the semicircular altar rail. I know I think in, in Scandinavian churches that's a, a more prominent feature, but uh, always the fact that the, the feast that we have on here on earth is a uh, a small foretaste of that that great heavenly feast that uh, all of our all of those who have died in Christ are are enjoying right now. So practices, funeral practices, and uh, burial practices have changed. It it sounds like uh, what you were describing with the early church is, you know, the the body would be prepared at home. That doesn't sound like that was a a large group. There were a few people who helped with that, but then there was a procession out to the burial site, and that's where more people became aware of uh, the this death who might not have known about it before. And uh, and then there was a, a a week or so of of mourning after that. And now we kind of it, it seems like we do things a, a little bit differently. Um, we we do you know a, someone prepares the body maybe there's a visitation and that's where a lot of people gather together for that that grieving and mourning and, and uh, expressing their their sympathies their condolences and then we have the 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 funeral service and the the burial right the um, uh, that that time beforehand in our context has gotten a little bit longer, a little bit more important. Part of it is just because we don't have the same sort of necessity just by, by nature of burying the body quickly so that uh, it doesn't continue to, to decay. So the, the reason why there was this kind of a rush to get the body in the, in the ground or whatever as, as soon as possible was more of a practical thing than some sort of a theological thing uh, because embalming has become uh, pretty common practice with us. That's something that can be extended or delayed as necessary, depending on the needs of the, the family and uh, other considerations. Did the Reformation shape uh, how we approach f- funerals, burial, um, at, specifically as Lutherans? Did the Reformation shape that at all? It certainly did. Uh, so the Reformation, uh, the focus is on Christ and uh, the hope of eternal life that we have in Him, that it's all by faith, uh, through all by grace through faith, uh, through what Christ has done for us. Uh, by Luther's time, I had mentioned the, the Lord's Supper being part of the, the funeral service. By Luther's time, that had become understood as more of a sacrifice on behalf of the person who had died, a, a, a mass for the dead. So the idea was that the, through the act of uh, representing the body of Christ, this was going to somehow benefit the person who had died, uh, maybe get them uh, few, fewer years in purgatory or something like that. There was a big... Uh, Emphasis on praying for the dead, the idea that this, this gathering together in our prayers would somehow uh, benefit the person who had died even after they had, uh, had passed away. So that was a big emphasis around Luther's time, and so the Lutheran uh, funeral service itself changed quite a bit in contrast to what had been done. 
Uh, in many cases, uh, the Lord's Supper was actually dropped from the funeral service just because it had been so uh, misunderstood and mis- mispresented. Uh, there are some, some Lutheran churches that still have that tradition of a, of a funeral service with the Lord's Supper, but in many places that fell out simply because it had been uh, misunderstood. That got replaced largely with uh, the funeral sermon. Uh, the Lutherans were known for their preaching and uh, pro- proclamation of the gospel, and this became a prime time for uh, reminding all those gathered what our true hope is in, uh, that it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we have the hope of eternal life, that uh, God showed his grace and mercy to this person throughout their life, and that's where their hope ultimately lies. So the funeral sermon was the big thing. The second thing was uh, the hymnody. Now, the Lutheran Reformation was all very much centered on the hymns and the singing of the church, and so it became very important in the Lutheran church particularly to uh, sing hymns of, of hope and uh, grace focused on Christ at the, at the funeral. If the parish had a school, it would be very common for the school kids to come over and sing the hymns and help lead the music for the funeral sermons, or funeral services there in the Lutheran churches so that uh, the joy and the hope of the resurrection is connected uh, both through the sermon and through the music uh, of the church at the time. I want to go back to the, the Mass for the Dead as a as a musician, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that's the the, the uh, what we call the requiem, right? Yes, the requiem mass. And that in musical traditions, I mean, those, those are the requiem is quite significant uh, throughout. You know, the, several periods of music, requiem is just a. Uh, the, there are several requiems written by uh, many composers that are are just uh, phenomenal pieces. You know, of of music. Uh, right. What is? Tell me more about this uh, Mass for the Dead or the Requiem. Sure. So, uh, the way that the uh, the theology was going at the time was that uh, Christ's sacrifice was on its own was not enough to uh, merit you eternal life. You had to participate. Mm. You had to add to that. You had to uh, do the the works necessary to make up for for the guilt of your sin. And so if you died and still had like a negative balance on your sheet, <laughs> you were uh, in danger of uh, spending uh, time in purgatory that was needed to uh, purify you before you were fit for the, the presence of God. And so by offering this, this funeral mass in your place, or sometimes even memorial masses for years afterwards, the idea was that through the sacrifice of Christ, those, uh, those works would be added to your side of the, the balance sheet, and you would... Uh, get your way out of out of purgatory sooner. So it, it became very much focused on uh, the action of, of the priest in uh, representing the body of Christ as a, a way to get you where you're going a little bit sooner, uh, kind of increase the, the grace on your side of the, the sheet so that uh, your, your relatives wouldn't have to wait for so long for you to be uh, in your, your your heavenly rest. And this this teaching of of purgatory, the mass for the dead, the uh, the the requiem, the the works on behalf of uh, to to uh, to merit something for another person, um, to to get them less time in purgatory. All all these concepts are they rooted? They're not rooted in scripture in anywhere. No, they're not. Uh, there's a couple references in, um, for example, the, the books of Maccabees about praying for some soldiers who had died. But it more, it's, it's part of it has to do with some uh, medieval philosophy uh, about the, the state of the soul and, and how, how grace works. 
but more commonly, the way I explain it is it, it just kind of makes common sense to people. Uh, you've got Uncle Bill, who uh, was a nice guy. We're pretty sure he was a Christian, but he also uh, did lots of uh, things he shouldn't and kind of uh, uh, was rough with his temper and you know, maybe got himself in trouble a few times. And I really don't think Uncle Bill is quite ready for uh, going straight up to heaven to be with God. He probably needs to have a couple things worked out ahead of time. And so it just kind of logically fits that uh, God has to clean you up and get you ready uh, before he can, uh, before you're ready for uh, the holiness of his presence. So we just use the, the, we use logic and the creativity of man to come up with these, these ideas. Right. And, you know, grace is fundamentally illogical. The idea that uh, God's love for you uh, even in your your sinful state, is is enough to completely make up for your sins, that there's nothing that you have to do or contribute, that uh, it all comes to you as a free gift with nothing you have to contribute on your part. That makes absolutely no sense. You know, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians as foolishness. And so the the uh, the ideas of, of purgatory and uh, meriting grace and all of that seems to be more more logical, and people always tend to slip out of the gospel and back into the law. That's just kind of the way that our our uh, our mind tends to go. So the 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 Reformation certainly brought about significant changes, as you pointed earlier out earlier. We go from the the mass for the dead to the uh, the funeral service, uh, which is significantly different. You pointed out that, uh, that that sermons and 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 preaching with an emphasis, you know, strong emphasis on gospel proclamation is is far more significant in a Lutheran funeral. Yes, and there was there was even um, a second fun- second sermon that was often preached at the graveside too, just to make mm-hmm. sure the point got across. I read somewhere that they were told uh, to preach no more than thirty minutes at the graveside. <laughs> so there was this is not just kind of a, a side note, but this was a, a very central and uh, uh, intentional feature of the, the sermon was the, the service was the preaching of the gospel, so that. Uh, through the word faith would be created, people would be pointed to their true hope in Jesus Christ for, for everlasting life. You know, as as a pastor, how, especially during that uh, during the, the time of the Reformation, how would you know it's been a half an hour? <laughs> you have to use a sundial to uh, to to let you know, or or is it when it's cold? It's by the shivering of the people outside. You know, people start to drift away. You know, you probably should start to wrap things up. <laughs> How then? Let's move forward to uh, to more modern times. How do we get some of the the practices we have today? For example, funeral homes and or as they were called years ago, funeral parlors. How did we get uh, to that kind of practice? Sure. Well, in the first uh, few centuries of uh, American history, it was still very much a, a family and a community thing. The person who has died would be prepared at home. There might be a few people in the, in the community who uh, knew how to do this and would help the family out, and then they would uh, just take them out to the, the cemetery and bury them themselves. The only real professional they needed sometimes was a cabinet maker, a woodworker, a furniture maker to make the coffin or the casket itself. Uh, the, um, the advent of embalming is really what changed the whole difference in uh, the way that funerals were done. Uh, that came about in America uh, right around the time of the Civil War. Uh, they had been experimenting with it quite a bit in England. It was used quite a bit for the uh, research, for, for medical research, to be able to preserve tissues and things like that. But it wasn't that popular here in the United States until the Civil War. What happened was 
uh, around that time, uh, there was a, a U.S. colonel who died near the beginning of the war. Uh, his name was Elmer, Elmer Ephraim Ellsworth. Uh, he was a close personal friend of President Lincoln. And uh, Dr. Thomas Holmes asked Lincoln if he could embalm the body so that he could be shipped from Virginia to New York for the funeral. He was given permission to do this, and it, uh, a lot of people were, were surprised at how well the, the body was able to be preserved over that much time and distance. So he got a commission as like the official embalmer of the, the, for the Northern Army, and according to records, he embalmed about 4,000 different officers during the course of the war and trained others to do this, and then that way if they died in the battlefield, for example, in Pennsylvania, they could be shipped home to Ohio or somewhere else and still be preserved for a funeral. And this kind of introduced the practice of embalming uh, to quite a se segment of the uh, American population. And so after that point, as we kind of move into the late 1800s, early 1900s, you get companies trying to capitalize on this. They're creating these embalming fluids. What will happen is a uh, salesman will come to your town, put on a little show, offer to train you in the embalming arts, and after kind of a one- or two-day course, you can be certified to uh, be an embalmer if you buy enough of their embalming fluid to get your license. And uh, then you have to kind of convince people that, that this is worth paying for to have this done to your family member uh, just because it'll, it'll preserve them longer and you'll be able to enjoy some more time with them. And it becomes more of a professional thing rather than a family or even community thing as we move into the 1900s. We get this whole industry that, that, that grows up around uh, trying to uh, give comfort and peace to those who, have, who are mourning. But already by the 1920s, there are articles in newspapers complaining about how expensive funerals are becoming because of all this extra stuff that people are feeling obligated to do uh, at the time of death. Hmm. And that's interesting. That seems that there there may be some some cultural or losses there as well when that tradition moves from the home to to a profession. I have more questions. We'll continue the conversation with Pastor Burkholz here in just a moment, talking about funeral planning. You're listening to Faith and Family on Messenger of Good News Worldwide KFUL. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee, with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Advocates of abortion don't have facts on their side, so they routinely try to silence pro-lifers. They're trying to prevent a pro-life media outlet in Toronto, Canada, from naming an abortionist and staff who are witnesses in a trial. In Ontario, Canada, an advertising regulator is working to censor a pro-life bus ad with images of beautiful unborn babies. And the area's attorney general wants to stop sidewalk counselors outside abortion mills. 
Censorship's also happening in the U.S. A judge and L.A. district attorney are trying to censor a pro-life video. Abortionists describe ghastly details of late-term abortion and the sale of the body parts. Officials can't defend the content similar to Nazi experimentation on Jews, so they attack the messenger. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Up until now, evolution has taught that modern humans arose 150,000 years ago in Africa. So why did they find a modern human skull in Europe dated at 300,000 years ago? We'll find out live Thursday on Issues Etc. from Dr. David Menton of Answers in Genesis. Issues Etc. live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Our Give Now button at KFUO.org is available 24 hours a day. Also, you can send email to gifts at KFUO.org and ask for information about our various giving opportunities. To call and talk to someone today, contact Mary at 314-996-1518 or Mark Hawkinson at 314-996-1520. Support the mission of Worldwide KFUO and help us reach the world with the gospel. The NLS Braille and Talking Book Program gives patrons the freedom to read their way. Everybody can read the way they want to read using this program. For more information, call 1-888-NLS-READ. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, host of Moments of Assurance on KFUO, inviting you to tune in to the weekend edition of the program, the new time of 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings, Central Time. There'll be a different text and theme each week and plenty of encouragement and strength, which only the Lord's Word can supply. So join me for a quarter hour of God's power and strength. That's Moments of Assurance weekend at 7.45 a.m. Saturday and Sunday mornings on KFUO. You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. We're taking a look at the June-July issue of Lutheran Witness, talking with the Reverend Dr. Mark Burkholz, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Oaklawn, Illinois, author of a Funeral Planning Primer in the June-July issue of Lutheran Witness. And uh, before we went to break, uh, Pastor Burkholz, you had mentioned that the, I think it was around the 1800s, that the the tradition of, uh, of families preparing the body for burial moved to more of a, became more of a profession and, and uh, an industry, if you will, that uh, this, this practice or the, these duties moved to outside the home. I'm wondering if something was lost in that, uh, whether it's culturally or, or uh, within the family for family traditions, is there something lost when that moved from being a family responsibility to uh, becoming more of a profession outside of the family? Rather than being a family or a community uh, duty, it, it moved to someone outside the home. I can certainly imagine that it would change. Obviously not having experienced kind of the, the family situation myself, I can't speak to that firsthand. But I've noticed, for example, the way that we've shifted now to more of the, the hospice care model where a lot more people are moving back home uh, when their time draws near so that they can be more with their family rather than in more of an institutional setting seems to be very helpful for people in dealing with death. I think when it, uh, we do lose something when we uh, kind of make death something the professionals deal with and we don't 
personally have to uh, handle that ourselves. I know that it may be more convenient not to have to uh, take care of a lot of those things. But the the fact that uh, we it, it, it fundamentally changes our our personal view of death, and in a way, it can almost make it more more scary, more uh, more distant from us if we don't have to personally deal with any of the, the details surrounding it. Obviously, the the emotions and the, the uh, that that come with losing a loved one, with the death of a loved one, the the grieving that happens can make planning a funeral difficult. What else can make this this process of planning a, a funeral difficult? Uh, why is it so difficult or complicated? Uh, as you mentioned, it's sometimes hard to make clear, rational decisions when you're being very, very emotionally driven and dealing with grief and loss. Uh, there's a lot of cultural pressures to do things a certain way. Uh, you know, it's, we, we kind of feel like our funerals need to be, be similar to the stuff that we see either at our, with our friends or on TV, things like that. Uh, another just kind of practical thing is that the expense of it all becomes a very complicating factor uh, the more you get kind of more more different details and people involved, it can become a difficult process to make. And then you've got families who are working through this process who might have other conflicts or unresolved issues to deal with. So often it's the interpersonal stuff that can kind of come out when you're being in a very emotionally intense state and things that um, may not seem like a big deal in retrospect become a big deal just because of all the emotions uh, and significance involved with it. So what about planning in advance or or at least communicating your expectations to your loved ones, to your family in advance? How important is that? How helpful is that? It's helpful in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's just the logistical uh, issues. When, when someone dies, there's a lot of stuff that just simply needs to be done that you don't always think about. And to have at least some of those details set and, and nailed down just makes it one less thing you have to do, and so you can focus on dealing with uh, the grief and the mourning process. But even more so, the, the planning, the, the, the leading up to the, the funeral, uh, can be an important time to witness and to uh, talk about very important issues that sometimes just kind of get swept under the rug or are not even dealt with. Uh, I remember a family that I, I was working with shortly after I came here, and the, the husband was... Uh, and father was was in the process of dying. It was a terminal disease. We could all tell that it was uh, something that was coming soon. And we started talking about funeral planning, and uh, we talked about different Bible verses and texts that might be important to include. Uh, and he sat down with his son, and they opened up their Bible, and they, they kind of talked through, and they read some of those verses. And the son later talked to me about how important and meaningful that was, because he and his dad just never did that. They did never kind of went through the Bible together, talked about faith, and so this led them to have some pretty meaningful, important conversations, and it was a chance for the father to witness to his son about uh, what he believed and why this was important and how this would uh, play out as his life was drawing to a close. Other things that, that make this, the, the planning a funeral, well, first of all, who's planning a funeral? Who, <laughs> in your article, you, you, you talk about, you know, from, from your vocation as a pastor and this, this office that you hold as a pastor and your work in planning a funeral, who is 
who's in charge here, Pastor? <laughs> well, the way that we talk about a funeral is that it is a public worship service of the church. So you're, uh, the focus is on Christ. We're singing uh, hymns and, and offering prayers to God. We are hearing God's Word. We're kind of focusing on Him. And so as a public worship service of the congregation, uh, that's the pastor's responsibility to make sure that that's carried out in accordance with God's Word faithfully, according to what we believe and teach about God. Uh, it can become very... The, the waters get quite muddy because uh, you're often working with a family that is not connected to your congregation. Uh, kids, grandkids uh, who have moved away or have left the church or were never connected in the first place. And so from their point of view, that the pastor is just simply someone else that you hire as part of the, the package deal. So you, you, know, you, you pay the funeral home, you pay the, the florist, you, play, you pay the cemetery, you may pay a musician or two, you pay a pastor, and so you just kind of tell them, uh, here's what we want, here's, here's what we expect you to do. So that can lead to some, some difficult um, uh, conversations uh, when it comes time to actually putting everything down in, in writing. And I kind of allude to that at the beginning of the uh, at the beginning of the article that uh, often that that can be a, a a tense time as you're kind of working that out and figuring out exactly what's happening and who's who's making these sort of decisions. Sure, you describe that well. It, it sounds pretty typical to me as a as a fellow church worker, though I've I've never had the responsibilities that a pastor has in funerals. But first came the shock, the sudden death of their loved one, then everything that had to be done at once. Phone calls, paperwork, dozens of decisions that came from the funeral home where they're trying to pick out flowers, caskets, vaults. And now it's time to plan the funeral service. And then you can see that, that one is is nervous, hasn't been in church in a year, another was confirmed years ago, and now attends a, a big non-denominational church. None of them are, are current members, and perhaps you're even, as a pastor, meeting them for the first time. And then the questions come about, about music, about, uh, you know, eulogies and things like that. Um, it, it seems like a pretty probably a pretty common scenario that, that pastors and that, that families face as well. There's this, this um, unfamiliarity for, for many. Now, granted, there are in our congregations many families who are very close to their pastors and know their pastors, and their pastors know uh, what their expectations are. But I would imagine this is all too common of a scene as well as you've described here. Yeah, that, that's just kind of a composite. It's not really one mm-hmm. specific scenario, but that's, that's very, very common, very typical where... Uh, the, the, the people who are actually uh, I'm working with throughout the whole process are uh, are non-members, often not churched or not connected to a church, and there's certainly lots of challenges to work through. You certainly want to provide them comfort and hope. You don't want to do things that would push them away from from Christ and His message of the gospel. At the other times, you do want to steer uh, steer them away from things that would uh, detract from the gospel that would uh, get in the way of, of the proclamation of uh, resurrection and eternal life that we want to make make at the forefront of the service. So let's talk about that. What is the what is the service you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the history of the funeral service? going from the, the Mass for the Dead to the Reformation emphasis on the proclamation of uh, of Christ, of the, the gospel being the, the, the chief emphasis of this funeral service. What does a service look like today? What does a Lutheran funeral service look like today? The Lutheran funeral service is designed to 
grant hope and comfort to, uh, to those who mourn uh, by pointing them to Christ. So everything is about Jesus, what, what, what God has done, first of all, in the past for this person. Uh, we certainly do give thanks to God for all, that, all the good that the, that the person who has died has done, for uh, the blessings that God has given them through their life, but it, it's not seen as a way of praising this person or uh, somehow holding them up as uh, such a wonderful person. Uh, because, of course, they, they were also sinners and they needed the grace of God, even though the fact that they have died is a, is a sign that uh, the wages of sin is death and death has entered our world. And uh, this person is also someone who needed the grace of God. So we talk about uh, how God has worked in their life uh, to bring them to faith and to of eternal life. Uh, we talk about the continuing hope and comfort of the people who are there. Uh, it's not just about the, the person who has died, but... Uh, to remind all those people present that oh, if our Lord, unless our Lord returns sooner, this is something we'll all have to face. So are you ready? Are you prepared for when your last hour comes? And then finally to point forward to the hope that we have of the resurrection in Christ, that it's not just about our, the, the, this idea that, you know, well, our loved one lives on in our hearts or they're uh, just simply kind of floating on, around in a cloud looking down on us or something like that, but our, our ultimate hope is in uh, the resurrection on the last day as Christ returns and uh, makes us part of his new creation. So it's all about what Jesus does, uh, what he has done in the past, giving thanks for that, uh, and also pointing forward to the promises that he's made and the sure and certain hope of eternal life that we have in him. So everything that we do from the, the readings to the songs to the prayers to just the, the rituals, the way that uh, the service walks through should put Jesus at the forefront and the center of, of that whole service. So then let's talk about some other elements of the service. We talked about preaching and the message. How then is music an important part of funeral? Music is a, a wonderful way to uh, take God's Word and to uh, both apply it to those who hear it and who listen to it. Music sometimes has a way of getting through and emphasizing uh, the words and, and bringing them to bear in our lives to get the people to participate and join in as well, to, to sing. We're not a very singing culture anymore. We, we like performers to sing, but we're not sometimes used to coming together as a group and singing. And so singing that song has a way to, to bring us all together and to uh, bring some beauty and some life into, into the service. The service should not just be uh, kind of dwelling on death, but give you, give you hope and beauty for the, for the life to come. And a picture you mentioned before about the, the, the songs around the throne will be singing in heaven, and so it's a good chance to get uh, to get practicing and be a part of that that here and now is to make music a, a, an integral part of the way that we uh, we do our funeral services. You in the article you you advise to avoid the sappy and sentimental songs. Why is that? Well, a lot of the the, the issue comes in that uh, most people, if you're outside the church, may know a couple songs. Uh, there, there's not as much familiarity. And so people tend to choose the same, you know, three, four, or five songs if you just simply say, what do you want to sing at the funeral? And those are songs that may be, uh, the, the music itself are, are emotional, but they don't have the, the, the same clarity in proclaiming the gospel and uh, talking about the reality of death and the, the hope of eternal life. There's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like... Um, 
uh, a meal that's not filling. You know, you, you can, uh, it's not harmful to you, but it doesn't provide a whole lot of nutrition. So usually what I'll say is, you know, we can, we can have a couple of those songs in there that you know that are familiar to you. You don't want people to be completely lost in the service, but you know, let's have a, a hymn or two in there that clearly talks about the resurrection, the hope that we have. Let's have a hymn that uh, connects us to Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope of eternal life and make sure that what we have in there is, is something that will uh, will proclaim the gospel that we believe. So th- the key is here, the funeral service is, uh, th- the most important thing here in the funeral service is the, the clear proclamation of the gospel and that hope in Jesus, the hope uh, of resurrection in Jesus. And so we want that message to be clear. And so that needs to be clear throughout the service, including the music. Right. It should all, um, there should be no doubt in the people's minds mm-hmm. kind of what we believe and what, we, what, we're, what we're thinking about here, and we don't want anything that would want to detract or even water that down a bit. Um, this is often one of the few times people are in church and hearing, hearing God's Word anymore, uh, is around special events, you know, weddings, funerals, things like that. And so we have this, this opportunity to proclaim uh, the gospel for the Holy Spirit to do His work in creating faith, and uh, there have been times where people have been drawn back into the church through uh, what happens at a, at the funeral, the time of death, that makes it clear again uh, what we believe and why. That's where it all really matters: is is at the time of death, uh, what are we looking forward to? What is our what is our hope beyond this day? Why then is and I think you, you, you mentioned this earlier, but to dig in deeper to this, why then is the, the pastor in charge of the, the funeral service? Why is this primarily the pastor's responsibility? Obviously, the, the, the family has, um, you know, the pastor listens to the family in terms of, you know, their input for the service, but why is it ultimately the pastor's responsibility? Well, the pastor is the one who's been, uh, first of all, trained and prepared for this. Uh, who has you know, probably been through this a couple times, who uh, uh, knows what, uh, how things should go, but you know, more importantly, too, he's the one that God has called and put in that place for that, that position. That's why the Lord gives us pastors, uh, is for moments just like this to, uh, to proclaim his word, to speak on his behalf. Uh, they're the ones that God has particularly gifted us with to lead us through through times like this. Uh, the, the image of the word pastor is just the word for shepherd. Uh, around funeral times, we often talk about Jesus as our good shepherd. We, we often recite or sing the 23rd Psalm. Uh, there's a comfort there in uh, the shepherd leading us through all of uh, through this way. And pastors are the under-shepherds. Those are the, the assistant shepherds, however you want to put it, uh, who God has given us to lead us through uh, the, these times of death and mourning, to let that be uh, the, the call that he has to uh, to guide guide the people uh, through this time in a way that that's faithful. We have, uh, I think, we have just enough time to to take a look at how to then plan for a funeral, how to prepare for that, how to express your um, your wishes to your family or to your pastor. 
And then also I'd like to look at how do you start that conversation? Uh, it can be kind of awkward. <laughs> it, it can be. You know, we don't like to talk about death. We tend to tend to avoid things and we tend to put it off. So the first thing is not to wait around. You, you never know. You know, we're, we're used to now people living longer and going through a long dying process, but it can also happen quite suddenly and unexpectedly. So the first thing is don't, don't just kind of put it off. You're actually better off making decisions before it gets to be kind of a critical stage in your life. Uh, the second thing I would suggest is you know, just to sit down with your pastor and say, here's what I'm thinking about doing, and what sort of resources can you have, what guidance can you give me? Stuff does vary from place to place, and the way that funerals happen in Oak Lawn might be a little bit different than you know, St. Louis or, or somewhere else, and he might have some, some resources to guide you through the process. Uh, you obviously want to get in touch with a funeral home at some point, uh, just to talk about a lot of the logistics of uh, how things will go. Uh, but as much as you can put things down in writing and just not, not simply uh, talk about it, sometimes if you write things out first and then uh, you can set a time with, with your family or those who will be going through this with you to, uh, to do that. If it's down in writing, then it's something that, that at least gives you a basis to work through. And then you know, here at our congregation, we have files for all the members of the church, and anytime somebody uh, we have that conversation, or they, they give me something in writing, uh, make copies, put it in their file, so that even if, uh, say, I'm away on vacation or uh, there's a new pastor there or some, some other reason, they can just simply open the file up and have that information there. It can be something you can uh, make copies and, and share with the people who will be a part of that, that process when it comes. So uh, definitely get, get things in writing, sit down with your pastor, and make sure that uh, copies are out there for, for whoever might need that. I can imagine, I don't know, I would probably feel more comfortable talking to my pastor, initiating that conversation with pastor. Um, some might not be as comfortable initiating that, that conversation with the pastor, but what about with your family? How do you initiate that conversation? I mean, <laughs> we're going to go out for some pizza tonight and talk about my funeral. <laughs> yeah, obviously everybody's different. I don't know that I have a real uh, concrete suggestion on, on how, to, how to begin that conversation, uh, but... Uh, obviously, at some point, you're, you'll be talking about things like, um, you know, what, what happens when you die as far as uh, inheritance issues and uh, uh, maybe retirement, all that sort of stuff. And so, particularly as you're kind of reaching that stage in life where you're you're planning for uh, what might happen if you're if you're gone, if you're doing you know power of attorney type of things, if you're doing um, things dealing with. Uh, living wills or anything like that. Just make sure that the funeral is part of that whole discussion as to uh, when I die, these are some things that will that will need to happen, and this is the way that that will be consistent with with uh, the faith that I have and with uh, the way that uh, the way that I've I've been practicing my faith. Are there things that that you've changed in how you approach funerals as a pastor that uh, that you've learned since you've been in the uh, in the office of holy ministry that that you've gone about your practice? I don't. I can't think of a, a specific kind of major change that I've made, but I think part of it just is um, uh, the fact that after you've you've gone through the process a few times, you. Uh, you can kind of anticipate some of the uh, some of the questions, some of the concerns, some of the ways that, that things will be uh, will be will be done. Uh, I've 
I've become more intentional about talking with this with, with my members is probably the big thing in that uh, having gone through quite a few awkward conversations and in difficult moments, I've really seen the value in uh, being prepared and talking about this and trying to make it as non-threatening as possible. We just It was just really a coincidence. I was asked to write the Lutheran Witness article at the same time that I was preparing to do a Bible class with my congregation on this issue. This will be about the second time since I've been here that we've dealt with this formally as a whole congregation. But uh, this is simply another part of pastoral care is, is preparing people for, uh, for death and to... Uh, use this as an opportunity to, for, to help them express their faith and to uh, often witness to their family and those who will be here uh, is an important thing that pastors can be involved with. Would it be would it be beneficial for congregations to to go through some sort of organized process of this? You know, learning about funerals and then also um, maybe working on a worksheet or or some sort of guide for. Sort of guide for uh, helping them plan for their funeral. I would certainly recommend it. Uh, it's been very well received here. Uh, there have been people who've been involved with that who aren't typically the, the the folks who come to Bible class. So there's definitely an interest and a need for that. And often it has to be initiated by the pastor. There's a wonderful resource out there uh, published by CPH by Brian Wolfmuller called The Final Victory. Uh, and it's a little booklet. It's not anything too deep or intense, but it has some really basic helps for going through this process. So if you're a, a pastor or another church worker, or if you're just simply looking at doing this on your own, I would certainly say that's one place to start if you're looking for ideas on how to get, get going with all this. My guest today, the Reverend Dr. Mark Burkholz, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Oaklawn, Illinois, and author of a Funeral Planning Primer in the June-July issue of Lutheran Witness. Thanks for all that you've taught us today. Thanks for the, the great article. God's blessings on your ministry there at Faith. Thank you so much. Thank you also for your service to the church. Coming up in just a little bit, Thy Strong Word, you're listening to the Messenger of Good News on Worldwide KFUO. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.